Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. Fabulous. I want to tell you guys a really cool story, okay? Can I tell you a really cool story? I don't know if it's cool or not. Some of you are going to judge me, and that's okay. So, two years ago, pandemic, we're locked in our house, just like you guys, and Jerry and I are sitting in the back part of our house. If you haven't been to our house, there's like a room in the very back. It's like you just go all the way through the house, you get to the back. It was an addition in the 90s, I found out. So we're sitting there, we're looking into our kitchen, and one of the complaints that we've always had about our house is that the kitchen was like a hodgepodge of like stuff. Any of your kitchens like that? It's like an Altoona kitchen, right? You know, it's like, you know, in 1943, they added a cabinet. In 1965, they switched from like, you know, an ice chest to a refrigerator. Uh, You know, in 1984, they added a countertop that was like a little bit of like, uh, you know, dated. You know, that's my kitchen. So we're staring at the kitchen, and one of the things that it's missing uh, is a dishwasher. Now, this is certainly an interesting problem when I say it's missing a dishwasher. Um, But you can talk to me later. Dishes has always been a source of contention in our house. Um, So we're sitting there. We're looking into the kitchen at this nasty conglomeration. And Jerry was like, I want to (laughs) move. I was like, okay. Well, we we don't really have money to move. Um, What would it take for us to stay here? And she said, we'd take a dishwasher to stay here. I was like, okay. So I took out a piece of graph paper, started drawing our kitchen, and I redesigned our kitchen to incorporate a dishwasher. So if you've been to my house since the, the remodel two years ago, it was all because of a dishwasher. So we took a wall out. We made, I mean, it was, it was spectacular. So we, but one of the things that we did was we needed more counter space. So we put a, a microwave. You guys, you guys know this. You can put your microwave. Well, not the little one. You have to get one specifically for this. You can put it above the stove. You guys know about this? It's an amazing invention. You can put your microwave above the stove, and it saves you counter space. It's a beautiful thing. Okay? So we put this thing above our, our, our stove. Nice counters. It's amazing. It just got louder, didn't I? Whew. Um, so, so we've got this, this microwave, and so then, like, for a year, we were just like, this is amazing. You know, it's so open, and we got a dishwasher, and the microwave's up there. And then, as luck would have it, two weeks after the warranty expires on the microwave, the microwave stops working. Isn't that how it works? You know, you get, you know, whatever, a 12-month warranty, and on month 14, the microwave stops working. So this is, like, last year. And we're like staring at this microwave, and I'm like, well, okay, uh, I gotta figure out what's going on. I start looking online. People are like, these things are junk. They only last 14 months. And I'm like, we got one of the 14 month ones. Great. So for, we start looking, and I don't know if you've looked, but do you know how much microwaves go for? It's ridiculous. It's like a car payment, right? So I'm looking at this microwave. I'm working here full time now. And so I'm looking at this microwave that's dead, and I'm going, I can't afford to replace you but it would look weird if I took you down. So we've had this dead microwave on our, on our, above our stove for like, I don't know, eight months. And our thought was, we'll get past tax time and then we'll buy a new microwave, right? Now, 
Yesterday, I had this wild hair to like start just going through and cleaning stuff up and whatever, you know, every once in a while I get excited about things like that. And I'm looking above the microwave in the cabinets, it's above the microwave, you know, that's where they hide the plug. And I took this plug and I had this extension cord and I was like, wonder if you plug it into a different outlet, what would happen? (laughs) Some of you know what's about to happen. So I plugged this microwave into a countertop outlet and guess what? It works. Can you imagine had I gone and bought a new microwave, how frustrating it would have been to have spent, you know, the cost of a car on a microwave to find out that it didn't work. And the point I'm trying to make here to you is that diagnosis is a really important thing, right? Have you known that? If you've ever been the victim of a wrong diagnosis from the medical profession, you know that diagnosis is important. If you've ever had a car that didn't work and you threw cash on cash on cash on cash on cash trying to make your car work, you know that a good diagnosis is really important. I spent a lot of money one time trying to fix uh, something that turned out to be a fuse. A lot of money, fuses are cheap, okay? Diagnosis is really important, and this is true everywhere. Any of you who are mechanically inclined know this. Diagnosis is critical. If you don't diagnose the problem, what you end up doing is fixing a whole bunch of things that weren't the problem, right? I think this is important in the church. I think this is really important in the church because there's a lot of us in the church who have been trying for years, decades, to fix a problem but we've not diagnosed the root of the problem. Everybody's talking all the way around the problem. We're fixing, uh, we're fixing all the symptoms. But nobody has bothered to diagnose it correctly. Some of you are like, what problem are you talking about? What I want to tell you is, the problem that I'm talking about is we have tended to make Jesus our servant rather than posturing ourselves appropriately as servants of Jesus. We have, we wouldn't say it, but we have made God our helper. We have made God our elevator. We have made God the the one who makes us famous and the one who makes us wealthy and the one who makes us successful. And of course, the symptoms is over time, people stop being part of church because they're like, I don't need this anymore. We can't figure out why people aren't evangelizing and sharing their faith. We can't figure out why people aren't doing things. These are all symptoms of the fact that what we've done is we've flipped the roles. We've advertised to people, made them into consumers, and they're consumers of our expression of God. Do you see this? And I think it's a fundamental problem that we've gotten our roles mixed up. The difference here is what role do we play? We're beginning this series. It's going to be a really short series called Entrusted. It's a three-week series. And the premise behind the series is that the people of God, the biblical idea is that the people of God have been entrusted with God's stuff. We're not owners. We were never intended to be owners. We're always entrusted with God's stuff. The biblical word, and I'm going to use it one time right now, and I'm not going to use it again for the rest of the series. The biblical word is steward. And if I use that word, you will write this whole thing off as meaningless and it doesn't make any sense and it's religious mumbo-jumbo, right? 
The word I'm going to use the rest of the series is we are managers of God's stuff. The stuff is not ours. We manage God's stuff. So we're going to look at this, this idea that we are intended as God's people to be managers as God's stuff. The posture as we, that we have as followers of Jesus is never as owners. It's managers. Kingdom people are managers of God's stuff. I'm calling today's message, What's My Role in the World? So I want to pray, and then we're going to look at Scripture. What's my role in the world is the title today. So would you pray with me? Lord, I invite you to come into this space. And even here, Lord, I confess my own temptation to be an owner of things that you've entrusted me with. And so, Lord, even as I share your word, would you speak into my heart? Would you challenge my heart? God, would you give us eyes to see what it is you're doing in the world and what you're doing in our own hearts? Show us, Lord, what you want us to see. Bring clarity, Lord. Would you put power on this message in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 21. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to begin in verse 33. Now, Jesus is in a debate with the Pharisees and the chief priests in this space. Now, if you've read enough of the, the Gospels, what you'll discover is that this isn't really a new thing, right? Jesus is all the time in a debate with the Pharisees and the chief priests, right? Like, they're, they're constantly pushing his buttons and constantly, I was going to say something else, bothering him. Yeah, I'm not as redeemed as some of you think I am. Uh, <laughs> yeah, anyway. <laughs> so they're challenging his authority. And so he tells this parable right before the passage we're going to read. He tells this parable to say, you guys are so dense that you don't get it. And the people who get the kingdom of God better than you are the, the prostitutes and the tax collectors. He says, they're getting in before you are because you don't get it. And so here's what he says, beginning in verse 33. We're going to read a little bit of this, and then we're going we're gonna to pause for a minute. It says this, listen to another parable. This is Jesus talking. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time. And the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. We're going to pause right there. One of the things that's really important when Jesus tells parables is that they don't necessarily make sense to you and me. They make sense to the original hearers. So what we have to do if we want to understand what Jesus is getting at here is we have to understand who the players are and what the context is. And so what I want to do is I want to start by nailing down the characters, okay? We're going to nail down the characters, so hopefully we can get some clarity here. Probably if, you're, if you, you've really thought about it, you would say, well, the landowner is probably God, and you would be right. The vineyard 
and all the associated structures that get named in here, Jesus is using to represent the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God. So those who live under the rule and reign of God, that's the vineyard in this, in this space. The farmers that the landowner rented the vineyard out to are the chief priests and the Pharisees. Okay, so those are the people who are, are tending his vineyard. The servants who came to collect the fruit represent Old Testament prophets. And the landowner's son, as you might guess, this is a very churchy answer, represents Jesus, right? If you've been in kids' ministry, the answer is either God or Jesus. And we already gave you that one is God, so this one has to be Jesus. And so these are the characters that Jesus is using to tell the story. Now, they're being represented by other things. Now, the situation presented here may or may not be familiar to you. If you rent something, you pay people money and they give you a thing, right? If you ever go rent a, a kayak at Canoe Creek, you go give them money and they give you a kayak and you can go pedal around for, I don't you don't pedal in a kayak, I know that. I have kayak stories, it's like rabbit trail all day long. Some of you know my kayak story from last year. I've been in a kayak once, I've been out of a kayak once too. Um, somebody gets that. But you give them money, they give you a thing, and you can use that thing for a period of time. That's not the situation here. See, the landowner created all the structures for this vineyard. He has plants, he has a wine press, he has all these things so that it will create wine. To lease it out to these people, what he's saying is, you can use it to produce all the things that you need. The way you will pay me is you'll give me some of the fruit. That's the way you pay your lease. And so the expectation here, the thing that Jesus is, is trying to communicate is, God has given to the, uh, the Pharisees and the chief priests the kingdom of God with the expectation that they will produce the fruit of the kingdom of God. Do you see this? Are we all on the same page? Okay? Because we're going to press on and some really cool things are going to happen. I don't know if they're cool or not. We'll find out. Verse 38. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him, threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. You guys see what just happened? Jesus is like, y'all are going to kill me because you think you can own the things of the kingdom. Verse 40, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And of course, the Pharisees know what he will do to those tenants. It says this, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, and this is the punchline, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Of course, the chief priests and the Pharisees know what he's talking about. Verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. You see, the whole thing turns on the fact that Jesus is saying, God has given you the kingdom 
And your job is to manage the kingdom in such a way that it produces the fruit that God expects. And in the parable, what he says is you don't do that. Instead, you want to claim ownership for yourself. You're not satisfied to be a manager. And so God will kick you out and he will replace you with people who will manage it appropriately. Do you see? That's the whole point of this parable. Jesus is saying the way that we function in the world, the way that God's people function in the world is as managers. Kingdom people are managers of God's stuff. That's the whole point of this passage. In fact, where the Pharisees and the chief priests get in trouble is when they try to be owners. That's actually what they get corrected for. They try to lay claim, and the best thing they can hope for is that they're counterfeit owners, Because God is actually the owner. And if we don't understand this, we end up with all kinds of odd and twisted understandings of the rest of Scripture. We are not owners. We are managers. As soon as we make ourselves into owners, we turn into idolaters. Do you know what that means? It's a biblical word that says we worship something else. As soon as we become owners of anything, we begin to worship that thing. So long as we always have the posture as managers of the things that God has entrusted us with, we can relate appropriately. But it gets off kilter if we begin to to play as though we're owners. But here's the thing. Isn't this a hard thing to hear? It's hard to hear that when I say, you all are not owners, you're managers. That's a hard thing to hear, isn't it? It's hard for me to hear. When Jesus says, you don't own things, you only manage things. Do you know why it's so difficult to hear? Like, if you can even hear it, do you know why it's so difficult to hear? Because you live and I live in a time and space in world history where there's a counterfeit gospel that gets preached to every one of us. There's a different gospel that's selling us a different kind of salvation. We live at a time in world history where every one of us has basically infinite amount of information in our pocket, right? Do you know this? You can, anything you want to know, you can pull it out of your pocket. This is as close to all knowing as you can get. Right? Because anything you don't know, you pull it out and you Google it, don't you? Unless you don't like Google. You have a, what do you like, Bing? Is that a thing? That's still a thing. Right? If, you, if you're like, I, I refuse to work with Google, you have a Firefox app or something like that, Right? But in your pocket, you have the ability to know everything, right? Doesn't technology tell you you can know anything? It's all, there's an app for that, is what they used to say. You can know everything. You can be all-knowing. We live at a time in world history where you can be all-knowing. Not only that, but you live at a time in world history where you can command things to come to your house and they just do. Do you know that? Like a king. I want food. Somebody get it for me. Can't you do that? It's called Uber Eats, right? some, Some poor schmuck will just bring you food. Right? And you don't even have to get up. You can have them leave it at the door. Right? Not only that, but anything you could ever possibly want, Amazon will deliver to your door in two days or however long you'll tolerate. Right? Think about this for a minute. 
So you're all knowing, you're all powerful, you command people like kings, but it gets worse than that. Not only that, you also live at a time in world history where you, you don't ever have to be under someone else's authority. In fact, it's good to reject it. You can work for yourself. Do you guys remember a day whenever you actually had to go to work and learn to deal with coworkers? Like, you had the, that, that was what dinner conversation used to be, right? Like, I can't stand Bill, man, he's annoying. He's always late, right? You used to have to deal with coworkers and you used to have to deal with people called bosses who you had to work for. Do you remember this? But now you don't have to do that. You're just the Uber guy, right? You can create your own businesses. You can be your own authority. So now not only are you all-knowing and all-powerful, you're not submitted to anyone else's authority. This is beginning to sound like you're God, right? But it gets worse than that. We live at a time in world history where anyone and everyone, regardless of education, regardless of accomplishment, is allowed to have a voice to trumpet their thoughts into the world. And the world is forced to deal with that. You know, you used to have to be somebody and have accomplished something and have some sort of expertise on, an, on a subject in order to get a, a worldwide hearing. You don't have to do that anymore. Thanks to Facebook, I can stand right here, know nothing about the medical profession, and tell you everything about the way that doctoring works. Right? Did we not learn that over the last three years? That hit a little close to home for some people. Some of you did that. I wasn't talking about you exactly. Maybe I was. I don't know. You can ponder on that for a little while. But that's a thing we can do, right? So you're all-knowing. You're all-powerful. You get a hearing in the world, and on top of that, you live in a country, you and I live in a country that tells us, if you can dream it, you can be it, right? Isn't that the American dream? Anything you can dream, you can become. Whatever you want to be, you can be it. You want to be God? We've given you every tool, and you have an iPhone. You can command it all from your living room and you don't even have to put on shoes, right? This is a counterfeit gospel because over and over and over, culture tells you that you can save yourself. Do you recognize this? You can save yourself. You can be in charge of anything you want to be. You can have anything you want. Every day, the culture is trying to tell you that you are God. Have you seen this? And it sneaks into the church a little bit too, doesn't it? Isn't it the sort of the secret thing? Oh, God has a purpose for your life to become everything you ever wanted to be. You just put God at your debt. He will help you become everything you wanted to be. And the best lies have just a little bit of truth, don't they? Jesus saved you so you can become anything you want to be. There's a lie and a truth in that. Do you know that? Jesus saved you for sure so that you can become everything he wants you to be. But the subtle little twist is that we can be anything we want to be. And it flips the role. Do you see how it flips the role? Now you're God and God exists to serve you. But kingdom people are managers and not owners. And so if you can even hear that, if you can even hear 
that you're a manager and not an owner, it sounds almost unintelligible, does it not? I'm like, what? Like, even as I'm standing here, if you have at all been indoctrinated by prosperity teaching at all, what I'm saying is like, I don't know, this guy might be a heretic, right? Some of you are like having that thought, like, wait a minute, this is not what Joel Osteen tells me. Shouldn't have said that. If he, uh, never mind, I'm not even going to try to clean it up. I'm sure that'll, that'll fly really well. I'm going to need a retreat, man. Because here's the thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ says this. There is a God and you're not him. That no amount of stuff that you can accomplish, no amount of things you can own, no amount of money that you can obtain, no amount of influence that you can get, no amount of followers and no amount of likes can save you. But there's a thing, a twisted piece in every one of our hearts that says, I want to be in charge. I want to be in control. I want to be the one. There's this fatal flaw that we all have in the gospel of Jesus Christ says, you were never built to own things. You were built to manage things. I don't have time to look at it, but if we look at the creation story, that's that's foundational to the creation story. God created all the things And he said, I'm going to put you in charge of managing them. It's the way it started. It's the way it was always supposed to be. You were always intended to manage God's stuff. And when you choose to surrender your life to Jesus, what you're really doing is you're putting things in the right order. That's what it means to surrender your life to Jesus is to say, I'm going to stop being in charge and I'm going to let him be in charge. The problem is most of us, when we think about surrendering to Jesus, what do we think about? Well, my eternal... Afterlife is secure, right? Don't most of us, when we think about surrendering to Jesus, we think about putting Jesus in charge of all the things we didn't have control over anyway? Isn't that how we think about it? We think about it as if, you know, well, God can take care of Jesus. He can take care of the the things that I can't be in control of. I don't know about afterlife. And once the diagnosis and we've tried all the, the, the treatments and all the things and I'm now out of control, I'll entrust God with that thing. But to surrender to Jesus means not only surrendering all the things you don't have control over, but it's also surrendering all the things you think you can control pretty well. And this is the point at which I think the church misses it. This is exactly the point at which I think we miss. And here's why that matters. If you don't understand this, If you don't understand that surrendering your life to Jesus means trusting him with the things you don't control and the things that you do, what you'll end up with, you give your life to Jesus, some exciting moment, some of you remember this, it's like, oh, it's amazing, it's a breath of fresh air, I surrendered to Jesus, and and over a period of time you start going, well, why doesn't Jesus make more of a difference in my life? Have you been there? Why does this Christianity thing not like live up to the hype? They told me it would transform my life, but it feels like my life is the same. And the reason is because you trusted God with all the things you couldn't control, and you kept control of all the things you thought you were doing pretty well. And this is the reason why the church doesn't make a bigger difference in the world. Is because we're still laying control over all the things that we think we control. We're playing owners of all the things that we have. 
And if you're an owner of all these things, guess what? You have to protect it. You have to defend it. You have to fight for it. But the Bible tells you that God will fight for you. Do you see how this is different? Some of you are like, I didn't realize that. And this explains much of the way that Christianity at large functions in our society. We find ourselves fighting for things. But God was supposed to be our defender. I don't understand. Well, no, God needs us to fight for him. God doesn't need us to fight for him any more than a lion needs someone to fight for him. Turns out you just open the cage and let him out, and he fights for himself. But if we make ourselves owners, then we have to protect. We have to defend. We have to fight. If we're going to pretend to be God, we actually have to do all the things that God does. And guess what? None of us were built to do that. Do you know that? Can I just tell you as a pastor what I've seen? What I've watched as I've walked with people? I find that people are very happy to be converts to Jesus when it comes to the things they can't control. But it's a very small population who has said, I surrender everything. Jesus, I surrender my afterlife to you, and guess what? I surrender my checkbook to you. I surrender my calendar to you. I surrender my career to you. It's a very small group of people that actually do that. And those people always look really weird to everyone else. I remember having a conversation. Some of you know this story. When we were in Columbus, we were getting ready to move here to plant this church. And I was terrified but trying to be obedient. I was trying to have a strong face, right? Like, God has called me to plant this church and I'm going to do the thing. And so I honestly walked out in the snow. Snow was like this. Walked out in the snow to put the for sale sign for this house that I loved in the snow because I felt like God was calling us to do it. And I've tried to put on a brave face like I knew what I was doing, but I was terrified. I was trying to be obedient to Jesus. And the neighbor across the street, she came over and she goes, I saw you put your house up for sale. What'd you do that for? Well, God asked us to plant a church, so we're selling our house. We're going to move to the city that God asked us to move to. We're going to plant a church there. She's like, well, why would you do that? It's a good question, isn't it? It's not a financially like responsible thing to do, is it? And what I said to her, and I still stand by this, if God can't tell me to do something that scares me to death, I should give up pretending like I'm following him all along. People will look at you like you're crazy when you operate as a manager of God's things. But in the end, it makes the most sense we had somebody a year ago, whenever we, you all know, I came to work here after eight years, came to work here full time, and I gave up my flying job, and the pay cut was significant, but it was a no-brainer to me. I came home to Jerry when I knew it was supposed to happen. I said, this needs to happen because the Lord is speaking it. And she was like, yeah, I agree. We went to the board. We had a conversation with the board. They were like, yeah, we really feel like that's true. And the pay cut was staggering, and I'll never forget. Somebody came up to us and I'm like, why would you do that? 
Listen, if I'm just managing God's things, he puts in my hands the things he wants me to manage. I don't own any of them. And at any point, God can say, okay, I want that back now. I got to have an amazing flying job for years that paid the most amount of money I've ever seen. And I handed it over because God said, okay, you've got to enjoy that for a while. I want that back now. Listen, we're managers. We're not owners. If you're an owner in that situation, do you know what happens? Your world falls apart. If I'm trying to own God's things and God's things go away because he has a right to take them if he gives them, when he takes them, it crushes you because you've built your life on it. Do you see this? People will look at you like you're crazy. And what I have discovered is that lots of people have given Jesus their afterlife, but very few people have given Jesus their whole life. Where are you? What have you given to Jesus? Because here's what I've discovered. I've discovered that people who really struggle with dating and with marriage relationships are the people who have never bothered to ask Jesus what he thinks about the people they date. I've learned that the people who struggle the most with their finances and they're super anxious about money all the time are the people who have never bothered to say, Jesus, what do you think about the way I spend my money? I find that people that are constantly struggling and they're like, what am I going to do for a career and I don't know how to make my way in the world are the people who have never said, Jesus, what did you make me for? Why do I have these gifts and what do you intend them for? Friend, if you can get it figured out in your own life that you are a manager and not an owner, what floods your life is peace. Because then you're able to stand in a place where I had health and I got to celebrate my health and now I'm in this space where I'm not well. And that doesn't crush my life because I haven't lost the God who gave me the health in the first place. But if everything is dependent on you owning and possessing health, it will crush you when you don't have it. Does this make sense to you? Do you understand what I'm saying? So what does it mean if I say we manage God's stuff? What does it mean to manage God's stuff? It means that everything you have comes from God and it had an intended purpose when he gave it to you. Everything you have, God gives you talent and abilities because he has an intent for those talent and abilities. God gives you time and you know the time is not to just be thrown away. The time that God gives you is intended to be used for a purpose. God gives you money, and the money that God gives you is intended to be used for a purpose. So to manage God's, God's things means that we find out what God's purpose is, and we do that. And as a manager of God's stuff, then you have two priorities. The first priority is you need to learn to break the habit of making every decision yourself. Most of us have no idea that we have constructed such a habit of just making decisions, haven't we? Like if you really, if you like look back on your life, a decision comes in your face and you just make it, right? 
And then another decision comes and you just make it and you just decide and you're just a deciding machine and we're just getting through life and we're making the decisions. Should I eat out with my coworker or should I eat the bag lunch that I brought? Mm, Spent a lot of time making the bag lunch, going to eat that. Don't like that guy anyway, right? Don't you do that? Should I take this job or should I take that job? Well, I really feel like this one will pay me more money, so it must be what, you know, that's what I'm going to do. Do you know most of the decisions we make are really feeling-based? We just make decisions. We just get it done. Just make a lot of decisions. It's a habit. We've ingrained a habit. But if we actually want to manage God's stuff well, we have to slow down and make space. Do you know this? You have to slow down and make space. Let me tell you a little story to illustrate. Shortly after Jerry and I got married, I had a a flying job. I was a flight instructor. And every now and again, I would get called to go on an off day and go fly a charter trip. So we had been married probably less than three months. And my boss called and said, hey, I've got a charter trip for you. You're off on Tuesday. Really love to have you come fly. Those were more fun. They paid more money. The flight time was better. It was really cool. Got free lunch, all the things. As a single guy, I was used to just making decisions. So he called. He said, you want to go fly this charter trip? We're going here, blah, 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 blah. I said, yep, done. I'll be there. So I get home to my new wife. I say, hey, Tuesday, I'm going to fly. I'm flying the thing. thing." She's like, I had planned for us to go do this other thing on that day. It's like, yeah, but I got to like, it's, it's great. It's amazing. It's a thing, you know. She's like, yeah, but I had made this plan for us. And I was in the uncomfortable position. I happened to call the guy back and go, hey, um, so I'm married now. And my wife gets a say in the things we do now, which I'm not used to. So I'm going to have to not do the trip. And what I learned in that moment, any married people, you have learned this or your life is really hard. One of the two. What I learned in that moment is anything that impacts the both of us or could impact the both of us, if you ask me, I have to say, hey, that sounds great. I need to talk to Jerry first. Right? It's a thing that you learn. Usually the first year of marriage, it's what makes marriage the first year really, really hard, right? Because you have to make all these decisions. I say that to say the same thing is true with God. As a manager of God's things, God handed you these things, and somebody says, I want you to do this with them. What you have to do is go, hold on. This impacts two of us. Let me ask what God has to say about it. If you don't create space, you're never going to be able to manage God's things well. You need to get out of the habit of deciding everything for yourself. The second thing is you need to learn to hear and discern the voice of God. If you want to manage God's things well, he gets to have a say. Which makes hearing God's voice one of the most important things that you'll ever do in your life. It's not some weird party trick or something that like only a few of us get to do. If you are a follower of Jesus, you need to hear the voice of God speak on things. Because you're a manager. And he's going to tell you how he wants you to manage his things. Now, if you're like me, you probably want to read a book. You guys, how many of you like books? Like if you're like, hey, I need to learn the thing, I'm going to get a book. Two of you. Cool. Fabulous. Well, I have recommendations for you. 
There's two recommendations, two book recommendations, if you want to learn this. On the left is Dallas Willard, Hearing God, Developing a Conversational Relationship with God. Anything by Dallas Willard is worth at least twice what you'll pay for it, at least. That's an amazing book. The other one on the right, How to Hear God by Pete Gregg. It's a simple guide for normal people, also an amazing book. But both of these will get you started on how to hear from God. But here's the thing. In the same way that you wouldn't just read a book and then decide you know how to fly an airplane... You don't just read a book and decide now you know how to hear from God. The way you learn these things, flying airplanes and hearing from God, is by practice. You actually have to do it. That's how you grow in being able to hear God's voice is you listen and then you try it and you listen and you try it. And sometimes you look like an idiot because you're like, well, that must not have been what God was saying. Okay, that's fine. It's practice. Do you know that's the point of one of the things that we do in every one of our life groups? Like, I can't recommend highly enough to you to be a part of a life group. Because one of the things that we do is we create space in silence to listen for God to speak. And then we collectively discern what God is saying. It's practice. Sometimes it's really cool whenever God blows your mind in a life group setting. But it's really just repetitions hey, we're going to make space, we're going to listen. Does anybody hear anything from the Lord? Hey, I think this might be from God. Somebody else goes, yeah, I kind of got the same picture, I got the same same word. Wow, this must be God speaking. And you sort of train yourself to hearing from God. If you are not connected to a life group, highly recommend. But what I can say to you is as you begin to try this, As you just begin to create space instead of just making all the decisions on your own, you just start to say, hey, here's a decision to make. God, what do you think about it? As you do that, that that in and of itself will change the way that you make decisions. But as you trust that God is present, that God actually wants you to manage things well, and that your heart is actually open to him redirecting you, what you'll discover is that you begin to make the decisions that God desires. The way you grow in this stuff is you practice. You just start doing it. So the two priorities are break the habit of deciding everything yourself and learn to hear and discern the voice of God. Because here's what I know, and I'll finish with this. What I know is that God has called the church in America and around the world to be far more than it is. Far more. I think we're way underperforming what God expects. And if we want to be the kind of people that God has created us to be as the church, we need to learn to be managers of his things and not owners. It's the only way we're going to accomplish the restoration that God is doing. And here's the deal. God will restore all things. The question really is, do you get to go along with him or not? Do you get to participate or not? Because as, he, as Jesus says in the thing, the ones who are not producing the fruit of the kingdom get replaced by someone else. Will we be those kind of people? Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.